It's Wednesday, June 24th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, Mr. Jason Moser. Good to see you. Good to see you. How's everything going? It's going all right. We've got some retail news today. We've got consumer goods. Uh, we're going to start with Dell Technologies, which uh, every time I see news around Dell, I'm reminded, that's right, the, <laughs> the hot, literally the best performing stock of the 1990s then went away into the private market and is now back as a public company. Um, Dell shares rising because it is looking into a spinoff of the very large stake that Dell currently has in software company VMware. Um, I believe the stake that Dell has is somewhere north of 80%. Uh, uh, both stocks are up on this report in the Wall Street Journal. Um, Jason, what what should investors be either watching for or rooting for in this case? I can't tell if uh, you know because there are a couple of different angles to this. You know, one report says Dell was looking into essentially acquiring the rest of VMware that it doesn't own. Um, yeah. Now we get this report that it's looking to just spin it off altogether, which would obviously be tens of billions of dollars, potentially, in terms of a windfall for Dell, what should we be watching? Well, I mean, I think we can agree that, dude, you're getting a Dell works way better than, dude, you're getting a VMware. So, you know, that may be the the strongest point that, that Dell can play at this at this point because I mean it's it's not you know it's not that great honestly of a business. I mean when I see Dell today, the first thing that comes to mind after that marketing campaign is is unfortunately for them IBM. And what I mean by that it's it's a legacy name in an industry that feels like it's just completely flown flown right by it. I mean it's just completely passed right by it. And and I, I mean I may be doing somewhat of a disservice to IBM there just given given their investments in in uh, in cloud and the Red Hat acquisition and whatnot. But I mean it, it is what it is really. Um, I mean it does feel like the numbers are are really odd here. I mean it makes you, it makes you do a little bit of a double take. I mean Dell's market cap is $36 billion, around $36 billion. VMware's market cap is $62 billion. And so, Dell is trying to figure out what to do with its $50 billion stake, $50 billion stake in VMware. Now, Jason, you may ask, if Dell has a $50 billion stake in VMware, why is its market cap only $36 billion? Well, Chris, there's the rub. And that's the big question that investors probably need to figure out uh, how to answer before they uh, decide to, to dip a toe in these waters. I would recommend you probably not, because I guarantee you there are a lot of folks in here who know a lot more than we do and you do. Um, but, I mean, it really does go to show what the market's thinking when it comes to Dell. I mean, Dell is, is it's that legacy hardware business. I mean, they are dabbling in software and whatnot, but really, the future of this company is is more or less based in its VMware uh, investment. And so, they're trying to figure out exactly how to deal with that, how to unlock value for shareholders. And it could be in the form of buying VMware, because they own so much of it already. It could be in the form of spinning uh, something off. And I think if they wanted to do that, I believe there's a Maybe a year that they would have to wait in order to get a, a preferential tax treatment there, uh, but I mean it really does kind of all boil back down to this legacy opera, operator in Dell uh, trying to figure out what to do with a company that is 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 somewhat more forward looking in VMware, and, and the numbers uh, really kind of tell us what the market's thinking about both these companies today. It's a nice reminder too that again, this truly was the best performing stock of the 1990s, and. Yeah. Um, it, you know Jim Senegal, the uh, the great 
leader of Costco for so many years, uh, used to say, there are no annuities in business. That's absolutely true. It seems like it's even more true when we're talking about computers and hardware in general. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, back back when Dell was really at the top of its game, I mean, it it really was kind of a revolutionary company in a sense, right? I mean, this was as as technology was really, uh, you know, making such an impact on our lives early on, and Dell was was capitalizing on that. Uh, I mean, you fast forward to today. I mean, this company really hasn't changed all that much. And I mean, it is just it relies on that sort of again. I use the word legacy, but that's really just another way of saying it's just kind of old news, more or less. And and, and I think the problem for Dell, you know, if you're looking at Dell as an investment, I mean, it's not the easiest company to fully follow and understand, given its history. History and the various transactions from going private and then going public again. And I mean, I certainly understand um, investors' concerns here, given that the company went public again, I think, in 2018. I mean, the stock is essentially flat in the face of, of a rising market there. So, again, you're looking at a company that's not really able to capitalize on where the puck is going, so to speak. I mean, there's the investment in VMware, and that, that's certainly a bright spot. Uh, but VMware isn't Dell, right? They're two very separate, different companies. And so, I think that you know, if you look at the two, uh, VMware is the more attractive of the two, but it's just going to be really, it's going to boil down to how they, how they unlock this value for investors. That's not clear yet. Um, so, for me, when I see these types of things, again, I, I adopt the mindset that there are a lot of people out there involved with this that know a lot more than I do. Um, to me, investing is as easy or as difficult as you want to make it. And if if you if you decide to play in this sandbox, I think you have to acknowledge that you're trying to make it somewhat difficult. The degree of difficulty is a little bit higher. And and so for me, I just sit and I watch and I learn and I, and I be entertained. Um, but but I don't know that I would recommend investors try to get in there and and, and uh, play some type of arbitrage or value uh, value realization here. Simon Property Group, which is the biggest mall operator in America, is looking into buying J.C. Penney. To do this, Simon Property would team up with Brookfield Property Partners, and this is a partnership that Simon has undertaken in the past, Jason. Uh, they did it earlier this year when the two teamed up to buy Forever 21. You mm -hmm. go back a few years, they teamed up to buy Aeropostale. Uh, I will hasten to point out that both Simon Property and Brookfield Property Partners, both those stocks down in the neighborhood of 5 to 8% on these reports. Uh, is, is the third time a charm? Do they team up? Do they actually go and buy JCPenney? Well, I, I mean, I, it maybe. I mean, so I, I'll say that you know Matt Frankel, my partner in crime on the Monday Industry Focus shows, he and I talked about the, about this on Monday as well, and you know, I, I, it, it's easy on the surface to look at this and say, what in the world are you thinking? I mean, we're all sitting here just ripping on JCPenney for the last several years and just basically acknowledging the fact that the world doesn't really need JCPenney. And, and, and I don't think that's changed. And I don't think that's where Simon Property Group is actually uh, viewing this from. Um, there, there's a real estate angle here, ultimately, that, that I think uh, has Simon's interest. And, and, and certainly, Matt felt that way as well. Um, if you look at Simon Property Group, I mean, that's the largest mall operator out there, right? They operate a lot of malls, and, and we knew uh, what went on during the during the shutdown. I mean, that really, uh, you know, dinged their business, for, for lack of a better word, uh, 
because of, of that exposure there. But I mean, in in good times, I mean, that's a pretty strong presence to have. And the interesting thing about J.C. Penney is there is a real estate angle here. I mean, it kind of takes you back to those days of Sears and the real estate thesis that that folks would try to use in in justifying an investment in, in Sears. And so for the individual investor, I don't know that it makes a whole heck of a lot of sense. But for Simon Property Group, actually, I mean, this does make some sense in that they should be able to get the real estate here at at relatively good prices and and, and the thing is you know with JC Penney owning so much of that real estate and, and a lot of that also is in Simon properties so that ultimately means that Simon and they're not collecting rent from JC Penney on those on those stores because JC Penney more or less owns them what this does it gives Simon probably some pretty cheap real estate that they can then control as far as what the have a development take shape from there i mean it, it's one thing if you own a mall and then you see something like JC Penney go bankrupt and now all of a sudden all of your malls have this big anchor store that's been shut down and looks like a ghost town it doesn't it doesn't bode well for your mall it's not it's not an attractive uh, thing for your mall and so simon could certainly take more control over how uh, J.C. Penney is is managed from that point forward. You'd assume they would probably let J.C. Penney uh, shut down in most cases, and they could take those stores and develop them into something else, whether it's entertainment complexes, restaurants, movie theaters, what have you. So you know, it, it gives Simon Property more real estate. It gives them control over the development of that real estate in in a in a market that they're already really good at. At, at managing and, and so I do see the uh, I see the the idea there but but yeah you have to kind of dig down a little bit well and it also seems like if you can see the idea presumably you also see this is going to take a while that this oh, is yeah. <laughs> this is not uh, a thesis that you buy into thinking in the next three years you're going to start seeing res- that Simon Property and Brookfield are going to start seeing results, and therefore your shares are going to start seeing results. This seems like the sort of thing where, if this has a happy ending, we're talking at least five and probably closer to ten years down the line. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable expectation. I mean, when you talk about how many stores there are when when it comes to JC Penney, um, I mean, there's a strategy that ha- that would have to be laid out here. Uh, you have, I mean, you, you mentioned, I mean, it's Brookfield and Simon Property, so it's not just like one real estate investment trust calling the shots. Uh, but but I mean, you know, the flip side is, I would argue that's okay because you're essentially you're typically investing in a real estate investment trust for that. I mean, you're investing in a real estate investment trust with that long term. Uh, timeline in mind because they pay that nice yield given that, that REITs pay out most of their net income in the form of dividends for that tax for that tax treatment. You know, holding on to those REITs for long periods of time is actually a pretty nice thing to do. And with Simon, I mean you can create you can criticize this deal if you want, but they have a great track record in the space. They're really good at what they do. Um, and so you know I think you gotta at least give them a little slack here and see if they see if they can't come up with something. But yeah, it'll take a while. Unilever is talking with a host of private equity firms about its tea business. Uh, like Procter & Gamble, Unilever is one of those consumer goods giants. It's a $150 billion company with hundreds of brands, home cleaning, health and beauty, food, beverages, and they do have a few tea brands, most notably Lipton. Jason, they're talking to Bain Capital, Blackstone Group, KKR. I mean, this is kind of a who's who of private equity. One of the things I'm struck by here is that 
all of these private equity firms are really interested in this tea business that for at least the last, call it six months or so, Unilever has made pretty clear they're you know, they're interested in shedding at the right price. It does seem like they want to. And, and for the folks who are t- tuning in here on Motley Fool Live, you, you may see my, my cup here, my, my iced tea, right? And this is, this is your Lipton iced tea right here. So, so I'm giving Unilever a little bit of a shout here because I do consume a ton of that Lipton tea on a daily basis. And, and I think a lot of people do. When you look at the numbers, tea is the most widely consumed beverage in the world next to water. I've got some interesting, interesting data here on tea, Chris. In 2019, Americans consumed over 84 billion servings of tea, or more than 3.8 billion gallons. And about 84% of all tea consumed was black tea. So that's basically what, you know, what that Lipton tea is. Uh, it, approximately 75 to 80% of tea consumed in America is, in fact, iced. So we like our iced tea. So black tea, iced tea, that all bodes well for Lipton. Now, you know, as far as Unilever goes, maybe they feel like uh, there are better places to invest these dollars. I mean, it, sales of black tea, I think it generates around $3.3 billion in sales for, Uni, for Unilever annually. So that's a big number, but it has been falling. I mean, they, they are seeing consumer taste shift towards more herbal teas and things like that. Like we saw with Starbucks early on making that investment in Tazo tea or Tazo tea. Uh, and I think actually Unilever owns that now. Um, but but you're starting to see this shift in, in tea mentality away from like your standard iced tea, black tea kind of thing over towards more of those herbals. And, and that's kind of where Unilever's thinking, you know what, maybe this isn't really where we want our portfolio of brands to be to be positioned for the future. And I get that. I mean, it does seem like the company is trying to shed some of those old school brands and, and get, you know, more of the, the newer brand. It, does, it feels like we're in a little bit of a brand uh, a brand turnover here domestically where you're kind of, you're seeing like, it makes me think of Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway and his fondness for things like Heinz and Kraft and Philly cream cheese. Those things are starting to, they're starting to be disrupted a little bit with, with these new brands that are coming in for uh, younger folks. Uh, and, and, and maybe, maybe Unilever sees that same thing happening with Lipton and they don't want to focus necessarily on that uh, side of the business. But I mean, you know, tea and coffee, it's good business. I mean, it's it's repeat sales. People drink a lot of it. I mean, I can remember in the time when we lived overseas and we were in Egypt, for example. I mean, you couldn't walk anywhere without somebody pulling you into their shop and offering you a, a glass of tea. I mean, in, in many places, it's a cultural thing. Uh, but but yeah, it, it feels like maybe they feel like they could allocate those dollars uh, more wisely somewhere else. They do seem to have a pretty good track record of allocating capital, uh, and maybe that's where this is coming from. Well, and in terms of actual dollars, some of the numbers being thrown around are Unilever could fetch north of $6 billion for this portfolio of tea brands. And to your point about reinvesting that money, uh, if you're a shareholder, I mean, this is, you know, you, you got to hope that they're going to be smart about that because they have hundreds of brands. And I was yeah, reminded, yeah. sort of looking over, uh, some information about Unilever this morning of the way that Procter and Gamble over the past decade <coughs> has methodically shed brands and has rewarded shareholders as a result of that. I mean, when we started doing this podcast in 2011, that's about the time that Procter and Gamble came out and said, "Look, we got too many brands. Uh, we're going to start to look to get rid of some of these." And it's paid off. I mean, it's not it is not a shoot to the moon stock, but it's sort of, you know, it's basically doubled 
over the past nine years or so, and for us, you know, a dividend-paying consumer goods giant like Procter and Gamble, you know, that's not a bad performance. You know, if you're if you're someone looking at your portfolio and thinking, I want a section of it for sort of those large blue chips, they're going to pay a dividend. I don't have to really worry about them. They've done a nice job of rewarding shareholders. If they, if Unilever goes through with this, I hope they're able to do sort of the same thing. It hasn't done quite as well as a stock as Procter and Gamble has over the past decade. It's done pretty well, um, but I mean, if they want to follow that strategy, that that might be a smart move because I think they have somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 brands, and they're they're more global. They're less tied to the United States um, than maybe Procter and Gamble is, but. Uh, yeah, hopefully, if they get that money, they're going to invest it well. And on the flip side, more coffee and tea brands <laughs> going private. I was reminded of JAB Holdings, which has got you know Pete's Coffee uh, under its umbrella. Um, JAB also bought Panera Bread, so it's going to be interesting to see if you know in the same year we see uh, a major tea brand in Lipton go private. And JAB Holdings go through with spinning out whether it's Pete's or one of their other coffee brands. Yeah, and, and I mean, I, you make a really good point there. I mean, there is a point where these these big sort of conglomerates, these big brand collectors, I mean, they can get bloated, right? And they sort of lose a little bit of the vision. Um, it, it does feel like Unilever is trying to position themselves for a bit more of a. I don't want to say a premium pricing uh, offering, but at least maybe something where they can realize some some pricing down the road. Whereas you know maybe Lipton isn't something that you'd really be able to, to you know push prices up a whole heck of a lot uh, over 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 time. Um, but but yeah, I, I mean I think either way, I, I certainly understand the attraction for uh, for these companies like JAB to, to go ahead and try to collect as many of these similar style uh, offerings, whether it's coffee or tea. I mean, very similar style, very large market opportunities. In, in generally speaking, you know, I mean, they have a pretty good idea of how to do it, right? I mean, there's distribution in play there as well, and, and they've got really very attractive distribution networks all over the world, which which really plays into particularly the tea and coffee market, given their popularity. Uh, so, you could see both sides certainly winning here, uh, just really a matter of, of if, if Unilever is making the right decision, uh, exactly how they're trying to position that portfolio for the future, uh, and if they could shed the right brands to really focus on the right ones as well. So you're just when it comes to tea consumption, you're just straight up iced tea. You're not a hot tea guy. So I don't drink a lot of hot tea. No, I drink. So it's it's the progression for me. Basically, goes morning. You know, we're drinking the coffee, and once the coffee's dry, you know, then we go into the iced tea. And that iced tea, you got to have a couple of good couple of good lemon wedges in there. You know, it's almost like an Arlen Palmer, but not quite. Uh, and, and it is sweet tea. Understand, it is sweet. I don't, I don't go heavy on the sugar, but it is sweetened. And then by the time the evening rolls around, you know, then you're probably looking at maybe having, you know, imbibing on that that nice that nice beer towards the end of the evening to sort of wrap up what hopefully has been a very successful day. And I feel like this one, hey man, we're on the right track, Chris. Absolutely, and if nothing else, you're certainly doing a great job of hydrating. So that's, <laughs> uh, you know, that's important for all of us, no doubt. Jason Moser, thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.